Well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us. It's been three months for us to be away, and it's very good to be back, and we've missed you all. Now, for those of us who have begun to attend our church within the last three months and are perhaps disappointed that Pastor Danny or Kim or Dave or uh, a big Komatsu is not behind the pulpit, I just want to let you know that I'm also disappointed as well. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to be in the chairs, getting ready to listen to any one of them. Um, God has given to our church a variety of gifted preachers during the sabbatical, and we are very thankful for that. Uh, grateful as well for all the extra work that the staff, uh, the elders, the volunteers, Pastor Dave specifically, has taken on during that time. But it is good to be back here with you all. My daughter, four-year-old Piper, she really didn't understand the concept of sabbatical. Uh, nor could I explain it to her. And, uh, and about three weeks into it, she asked, Laura, can you tell Daddy how to get to church. <laughs> I think he forgot the directions. And it's literally two turns from our house to get to church, so she didn't really have a high, high view of me. Um, but she wasn't the only one. Each of our children would be so disappointed where every Sunday we would visit another church and they'd throw their head backs and roll their eyes and groan, when can we go back to our church? And so we do want to thank you, church family, for all the love and the care and the uh, kindness the patience you've shown to, to us throughout the last uh, decade and treating our family so very well, watching our kids be born and, and grow up uh, with you alongside of them. We love you guys and are thankful to God for you, and, and we couldn't wait to come back and worship him again and serve him alongside each of you. We, we had a wonderful time of refreshment, togetherness. I know that not every pastor gets to have a sabbatical, and so we're very thankful for your care for us. Now, with that being said, I do invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 17 and verse 11 as we resume our study of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 876. If you are using a church Bible, page 876. Luke chapter 17 and verse 11. Before we uh, look at this text together, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we are so thankful for how good you are to us um, in thousands and thousands of ways we likely take for granted. And we ask now that as we turn to your word that you would continue to be kind to us, that all of that which is trivial when all is said and done would remain just that, and what is lasting and eternal and ultimately good would come to the forefront. By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you make this message clear, uh, accurate, powerful unto salvation for those who uh, may not believe and, and for those of us that do, that you would continue to save us to the uttermost. Help us to see the glory and beauty and worth of Jesus Christ, who far surpasses anything else. We ask in his name we pray, amen. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, it tells us there that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and amplified, uh, since that point, Jesus has been resolute, uh, determined to head to that cross despite all the suffering which would come. Uh, to accomplish the salvation that God had sent him into the world to accomplish. There is this drive within his heart, this determination to save his people at great cost to himself. 
And it's since that moment and in the successive chapters and verses that I think we have some of the most substantial, uh, weighty discipleship material that we find in the New Testament. Even in the most recently preceding verses, describing our relationship to Jesus as a servant of him, which Pastor Dave did an excellent job preaching on, in our passage is not any different. It's as if that proximity to Jerusalem and this anticipation of the cross has this clarifying effect on what it is that really and ultimately matters and what it is that does not and where it is that we stand in relation to it all. Luke here inserts a narrative that tells us quite a bit about what saving faith looks like and what it doesn't look like. The nature of what it is and what it is not. And in this passage, we have a group of 10 people and only one of them actually gets it, which isn't the best of odds, especially considering this, their supernatural and very super uh, personal experience with Jesus. Nine out of 10 of them still simply don't get it. And yet those odds are not that uncommon even today. You know, our text uh, really revolves around the idea of gratitude, thankfulness, praise, worship, and the neglect of thankfulness, praise, and worship that out of a group of 10, strangely, it can sometimes be that only one will ultimately get it. I think this is recorded for us all that we might be numbered with that one. And so the breakdown for this morning is the commonality that the 10 share uh, in terms of thoughts, actions, mindset, and whatnot, what the 10 have in common. And then the distinction of the one, what is it that sets this person apart? And then finally, Jesus's commentary and his conclusion upon it all. And so their commonality, the distinction, and Jesus's thoughts about it all. Look with me in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria, Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. This group of 10 people have a shared common experience in life. They're sorrowful and yet hopeful and obedient they're afflicted with a miserable and pitiable condition that none of us would ever want to endure considering the context of this first century. But they share in this commonality and awareness of their own condition, uh, a recognition of Jesus, a hope in his mercy, and obedience to his word. They have all of that in common. Now, leprosy is a, is a horrible condition, uh, really foreign to our day and age and community. The worst of it is really this dreadful infectious disease that what may start off as something simply small and insignificant, maybe just a dead spot of skin. It can grow gradually and painfully until more and more it can overtake the entire body. The skin, the nerves underneath that skin deaden and, and the most extreme forms of leprosy were horribly disfiguring. Sores, rashes, deformities could leave its victims almost unrecognizable. Some lepers would even have their vocal cords destroyed, which would mean not only did you not look like you, you also didn't sound like you. Some lepers even experienced vision loss as well. And this nerve damage could lead to this inability to feel sensation in the extremities, which would make you lose your fingers and toes, even the tip of your nose, because you could smash those things and not know it, and then infection could take over. It would sometimes be so bad that a leper might actually smell his flesh being burnt 
without ever feeling that flesh being burned. I mean, we have a natural reaction to pain. We feel it, we jerk away. That's the safety mechanism. But what if you couldn't feel that pain? And let's let it linger there instead. Imagine the outcome. So therefore, what made this condition quite even more tragic is that so much of the damage would be self-inflicted because of that lack of feeling. And, and then there was a social and spiritual stigma that came with it. According to law, Leviticus 13 and 14, specifically 13, 45, and 46, it says there that the leper shall wear torn clothes and let his hair uh, of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has a disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp, which means once you are in leprosy protocols and the priest declares you a leper, you say goodbye to family and friends. And that designation may mark the last time that you get a bouncer kid on your knee or hold your beloved by his or her face or spend time with your aging parents, or share a meal with your dear friends, laughing with them, and you can't go back until that priest examines your body and declares you clean, which may not be ever in the more extreme cases of leprosy, as they never got a yield. In addition to that, the cherry on top in this context is that this leprosy had often been viewed as a judgment from God uh, for some kind of hideous sin within your heart. And so for lepers, rather than their condition uh, elicit compassion from people and sympathy. Actually, the worse you got, the more people would look at you downward. For they viewed your hideous body as representative of your hideous wickedness, which means that you're merely getting what you deserve as some kind of divine form of retribution. Now, whether all 10 lepers had leprosy to this degree, or whether they shared more minor versions of it, we don't know. But they each, and they all understand, we have the same categorization, the same exclusion, the same experience of being away from society, away from the worship of God, away from those we love most, and the only ones we can have togetherness with are those who suffer like we do. Later in our passage, we find that at least one of these lepers is a Samaritan, with the implication that the others were Israelites, and these are two people groups that never mix with each other. I mean, the cultural differences in the first century between these are more extreme than what we see uh, today and the differences between the two political parties, more stark than, I don't know, MAGA and, and, and the far left. But so tragic is this condition that it created a camaraderie of otherwise enemies because we literally have no one else to be with except those who have the very same thing. And so the 10 share this awareness of their own condition. They have that in common. But they also share in this recognition of Jesus and a hope in his mercy. I mean, notice how there's not an ounce of entitlement here. Not a single one of the 10 runs up to Jesus and demands him to answer, why, oh, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't run up to him and say, I have a bone to pick with you, Jesus, for the suffering contained in this little life of mine. You need to answer to me. I'm shaking my fist at you because of my trauma and my suffering. No, they each and they all, they stand at a distance for how dare we, in our filth and in this condition, how dare we come near to the master? The only leverage, the only rights, the only hope we have is that this Jesus whom we have heard about, the only hope we have is in his mercy upon a people like us. 
They don't think that Jesus owes them anything or that they're entitled to some kind of miraculous something. Have mercy on us, they cry out to him from afar. And for those of you who are believers here, you can already see the parallels to our own condition, the the spreading, disfiguring, numbing, self-damaging, relationship distancing, condition of sinfulness, uh, self-centeredness, self-worship and glory, uh, and whatnot, and our need of mercy from the one we can't even get near to in our unclean deformity, that his mercy is really our plea. And that hope in him is where it's to be found and not in ourselves. It's all we can cry out for. The text says that Jesus saw them. He didn't just hear their cries, but he turns and he looks upon them. He takes in the entire scene of 10 people in their misery. But unlike Luke 5, where Jesus touches the leper there, Jesus doesn't go near these 10. Instead, he instructs them to go obey the law of God and go show themselves to the priests. Now, I don't know why God decides to touch some lepers and to test other lepers. I don't think anyone does, but Jesus here decides to test these 10. Are they going to obey my word? Are they going to obey the word of God contained in the law as well? If you remember Naaman from the Syrian army, this is 2 Kings chapter 5, big commander, big wig, he was a leper. And someone told him about a prophet named Elisha who may help him out. And Elisha tells him, go wash seven times in the River Jordan, which isn't the nicest river. And Naaman, I bet he's thinking to himself there, as if I've never tried washing my skin before. Why doesn't he just heal me? Call out in the name of Yahweh, some show of power, just cure me. Why tell me to wash in a dirty river? I mean, there's other better rivers than that one. But sometimes it is that we just need to obey the word of God even when it may not make sense to us. That's called humility. That's called real obedience. Obeying when explanation only is appealing to us, that's called pride. And when Naaman did obey, even when he did not understand, that's when the cleansing really did occur. And these lepers, similarly, they could have easily thought to themselves, I've been to that priest. He's the one who declared me a leper, and right now my skin is looking exactly the same. I mean, I've gone back, and the classification never changes, and now you're telling me to go see the priest again? Why waste my time and his time in useless theatrics? Heal me right now in a grand display of power. We've heard about it. Why aren't you doing it? That could have been one response. But these 10 lepers, again, they not only share in this awareness of their condition and this recognition of Jesus and his mercy, but they also share in this humble heart of obedience. They each, and they all listen to Jesus, and they do exactly what he tells them to do, even when there's no guarantee that healing is going to occur. And it's on the way there, on the path of obedience, these 10 also share in this supernatural healing of their miserable condition. And now, side note, wherever you are at in this life, I think it is that we should get into the habit of saying yes to Jesus, even when we don't always understand why, even when we can't quite grasp the rationale of it. Love my enemies doesn't make sense. Not store up treasures on earth, I don't understand. The first shall be last and the last first forgiveness. You don't know how much I'd be taken advantage of if I did it your way, Jesus. Humble obedience doesn't always need to know why. It trusts the one more than it trusts the self. 
We should get into the pattern of obeying him from little things on up because otherwise we will get into precisely the opposite pattern. That I'm going to trust my mind and my intellect more, more so than the revealed word of God. And I'm only going to obey when his word agrees with mine. I mean, who's God in that situation? J.C. Rao writes this, let us mark how help meets men and women in the path of obedience. Relief met the afflicted company as soon as they obeyed his command. A fact like this is doubtlessly intended to teach us knowledge. It shows us the wisdom of simple, childlike obedience to every word which comes from the mouth of Christ. It does not befit us to stand still and reason and doubt when our master's commands are plain and unmistakable. If the lepers had acted in this way, they would have never been healed. You know, I wonder uh, if any of us in this room have delayed simple obedience because it just doesn't agree with where we're at right now. What is it in your life that is very difficult, that you simply cannot submit to Christ? We have to get into the habit of saying yes to him. And I'm sure that the struggle to obey is true in many of, of our lives here today, but it may be that that delayed obedience, disobedience, uh, obedience, which is just disobedience, is really robbing you of a blessing that will never be actualized until you start saying yes to the words of Christ, whether you can make sense of them or not. And think how crazy it must have been that as these lepers went along, that feeling to look down upon their arms and legs and hands and see that miraculous change take place and new skin growing over that crusty skin and to feel it in their bones and to look at each other and see it in all ten of their faces. That's what you look like and never even knew. That Christ's power had been more than enough to heal every single one of them, even at a distance, even without a touch, that the most dreadful disease can be undone and the most deadly consequences and symptoms of it can be reversed and made new. Which, again, isn't it? Such a parallel to the power of Jesus Christ in our own salvation. And what has been rotting in our lives and in our relationships, things that have been ruined by our unfeeling natures can, by his mercy, become something utterly new. That's the testimony of so many of us here. And so this group of 10 have a shared common experience of life. They have so many things in common, which is very rare things to have in common. An awareness of their condition, a recognition of Jesus, a hope in his mercy, and on top of that, humble obedience to his word, blessing realized. 10 out of 10 make it that far. That's rare. But the text doesn't end there. Because only one has something of distinction, which is perhaps the most crucial distinction in this life. And that's absolutely the point of our passage. Look with me in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. All 10, shared experience, shared hope, shared recognition of Jesus, shared humility, shared obedience to his word, shared miraculous healing, personal experience of it. All 10 have that. Only one turns back to Jesus and worships. Only one is more concerned with Jesus than with the healing itself. Only one is truly thankful. Only one wants to praise and it is the one who is a Samaritan who most religious people in the first century would categorize as that guy is the furthest from God himself. It's that guy who gets it. 
Now, sometimes we can read the Bible and look at accounts like these as tall tales that are familiar to us and not as real, actual, historical account, which is what it is. That if we were in these shoes, it's so simple. Just come back and worship. I mean, who wouldn't? But think about it. Let's say years have gone by and, and you haven't been able to get within a few feet of the ones you love most. I mean, think back to the beginning stages of COVID where we couldn't be with anyone for weeks and for months. Imagine that, let's say, for a decade, perhaps. You pass by a mirror, you can't recognize yourself. You're scratching everywhere, you're bleeding, can't even feel it. Your life, what you long for and are missing is hopelessly out of grasp. It feels like a distant memory and this new reality is horrible. And then you see your arms and legs overtaking with new skin, transforming before your very eyes. I mean, that experience in and of itself, mind-blowing. You feel your face. What's the first thing you're thinking? I'm going back to the priest, and once he gives to me the categorization of clean, I can have my life back. I can have my family back. I can see my friends. I can hug my kids and feel my spouse. For some, I can get eat at that one place, blah, 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 blah. The point of the sex is not that the nine were ungrateful. It's not like they're hardened. I'm sure that they told the priest all about Jesus. Look what happened to me. He said this would I, I, I look into the sky. Thank you, God. Proclaiming gratitude. And that priest should have known something about Jesus when those nine lepers come. But that's a different story for later of condemnation in the face of ample evidence. But the point of the sex is not that the nine have this hardened and ungrateful heart, unfeeling and unmoved by what had just happened. No, it's just that everything else had become more important to them than praise and worship and gratitude to Jesus himself. Jesus himself is somehow lost in the mix. You think that doesn't happen today? With things and career and needs and hobbies and kids and yada, yada, and this and that, with, with each thing really much less substantial than life-killing leprosy. You know, when Pastor Danny and his family were here, his wife Deborah uh, bought Piper this little bracelet, which I'm not good at buying in girly things because three boys came before her. I don't naturally think that way. And Deborah brings this bracelet over, and it's one bracelet that's pink and another that's purple, and they're intertwined to make one bracelet, and there's sparkles over the entire thing. And Piper, her eyes get round, and a smile creeps on her face, which is entirely lit up with joy. And she takes the bracelet, and she's so enamored with the shine of it, the feel of it, she starts to slide it on her wrist. And I tell her, say thank you. And without lifting her eyes and her chin to look at Deborah, she says, thank you. <laughs> without even looking in her direction. Now, is she thankful? Oh, absolutely. Her busted dad doesn't buy herself like that. Of course there is gratitude. But isn't it lacking? I mean, she's only four, somewhat understandable, but I don't know that a lot of us grow up from that stage, do we? Wanting to be with family and friends and being healthy and smooth skin, none of that's wrong. Absolutely not. That's not wrong. But there is an order, isn't there? There is a priority in our passage. And I wonder when it is the last time you stopped and dropped everything. The priest can wait. The family can wait. The kids, blah, 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 can wait. The show can wait. Dinner can wait. I wonder when it was the last time you stopped and dropped everything. And like the man in our text, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And you fall on your face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. As if nothing in life 
is more important than worship, praise, and an outpouring gratitude of all that he is and all that he has done and all that he continues to do in each of our lives. It's easy to be grouped with a nine, isn't it? One out of 10 isn't the best of odds, but I don't think that proportion is as uncommon today as it was in this text before us. We've been saved from something much more devastating than leprosy. We've been saved from the power of sin, hell, the coming judgment. And with it, sometimes there's a greater lack of looking to the one who loves us so much to save us like that. I mean, let's be real. Our current culture of Christianity really has a difficult time devoting even a single day of the week to worship with absolute priority. Praise neglected, worship denied, because almost anything is more important than that. Let me read to you some Charles Spurgeon excerpts who preached this in the 1800s and see if this still rings true today. There are more who receive benefits than ever give praise for them. But there's something more remarkable than this. The number of those who pray is greater than the number of those who praise. For these 10 men that were lepers all prayed, poor and feeble as their voices had become through disease, yet they lifted them up in prayer and united in crying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. But when it came to magnifying and praising God, only one of them took up the note. One would have thought that all who pray would praise, but it's not so. Cases have been where a whole ship's crew in time of storm has prayed, and yet none of that crew has sung the praise of God when the storm has become calm. Multitudes of our fellow citizens pray when they are sick and near to dying, but when they grow better, their praises grow sick unto death. Is that only in the 1800s? Alas, it's too sadly true that more pray than praise. If you're afflicted, if you lose money, if you fall into poverty, if your child is ill, if chastisement visits you in any form, you begin to pray. And I don't blame you for it. But should it be all praying and no praising? Should our life have so much salt and so little sweet in it? Does that sound like only an 1800s kind of pattern? I mean, I think this is why Luke puts this in the passage right here. And so while it is that the 10 share quite a bit of commonality, even in prayer, belief, faith, and obedience of source, only one, the Samaritan, the one furthest away from God is actually closest to God because he has a desire to turn back and praise him with a loud voice and falling at Jesus' feet to give him thanks. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to give himself to him. That's the distinction of the one. Now let's look at Jesus' commentary and conclusion upon it all in verse 18. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well, or more literally, your faith has saved you. Jesus' commentary here is about the relationship between saving faith and worship. A faith that saves, saving faith treasures Jesus. A faith that praises is a faith that saves. There's a lot of other kinds of faiths out there that don't love to worship and therefore are not going to finally be found as saving. 
that last sentence of our text, your faith has made you well. I like the ESV we have, but that last part, made you well, that's true. It's translated good. The word means that. But the verb's root is the word sozo, to save. It's the same root word that's found all over the Bible for salvation. And that salvation being intimately tied to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, all of the ten are made well in one sense. All of the ten have been saved from leprosy in another sense. But only one of the ten is truly made well, is truly saved, and that by faith because it is a faith that worships. What does saving faith in Jesus Christ look like? It treasures Jesus Christ. It runs back to him to worship. It cries out with a loud voice, praises. It falls on the knees at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now notice that Jesus is not taken aback and enamored with, wow, I can see your face now. I can hear your undamaged voice. Hip, hip, hooray. Your skin is so soft and supple. Luberderm, Avino. You can run and fall on your knees and you're not going to damage those knees because you have feeling again. That, none of that is what Jesus is enamored with as much as others might be. Jesus cares about one thing, saving faith, expressed in treasuring worship of himself. And the haunting question from the Savior's lips are we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Nine out of ten don't come back for the pearl of great price. Now let's take a step back and behold Jesus in our passage. We have in this text a Savior who has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined, he's resolute to hang upon the cross for the sins of the world. He has come to be born in a manger, to live a perfect life sinlessly unlike any of us so that he might die upon a cross and absorb the wrath of God against sin upon himself, him in our place, to shield those who believe in him. Not because he deserves it, but because we deserve it. And he does this, the Bible tells us, out of love for his people. And there's an upcoming resurrection where death is defeated only after Jesus experiences. We just sung, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Since power broken, heaven secure within his own body. There, if there's anyone who's too busy for 10 lepers on the fringes of society, if there's anyone who has more important things in front of them, if there's anyone who has an excuse to just ignore the cries and keep on keeping on, it's Jesus with all of eternity on his plate and a giant cup that he has to drink before him. And yet, look at our Savior. He stops, he looks and stares and absorbs the entire scene of their misery. And he offers them relief as if they're the most important thing in front of them. And nine out of ten never worship him for it. This is our Jesus, brothers and sisters. A leprous Samaritan can come to him to worship nameless lepers who no one cares for anymore. Jesus loves them. This is a gospel illustrated because we have a worse condition than leprosy, do we not? And our salvation that we experience is much greater. I mean, you can be healed from leprosy and still go to hell. It's very temporary. But those who are covered by the blood of Christ never will. And the surprise of all of creation is that most are not going to return to bow at his feet and get to know the Savior of love. 
you know, we can be tempted to think that the other nine did so much. Awareness of a condition, faith in Christ, in his mercy, no entitlement, obedience to him, supernatural experience with him, and just think that the worship, that's just the, the minor part that's missing. I mean, look at all of this other stuff. Can't you just round up? But it is from praise, worship, thanksgiving, or a lack thereof that our entire lives are dictated. That's the core which motivates all of our living. Let me show this to you in Romans 1. Paul's dissecting humanity's departure from God. They're living like this, which goes to this, which goes to this, which goes to this. This descending life of more and more iniquity. And Paul explains why in Romans 1, chapter 21, where he writes, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's something about the lack of worship, honor, the lack of gratitude, thanksgiving, that really motivates all other forms of godlessness. This is not the minor thing missing. This is the very heart and the root of every kind of single action we take in life. And the lack thereof is the root cause of every kind of sin in all of creation. For example, let's just say our lives are filled with complaining. We're not getting what we want. We're not getting our way. What happens then to the human heart? I feel cheated. I feel wronged. I'm entitled to something better than this. And then what does that grow into? We start looking around. How come that person gets this? And how come that person gets that? And then you have envy. Then you have anger. You can't even rejoice when someone's more blessed than we are. And then it descends more and more. Maybe you steal something. Maybe you commit adultery because we feel justified in taking what is not our own. Do you see how the root impacts the rest? R.C. Sproul says this, biblical ethics have gratitude, praise, worship at their core for it's always thankfulness to the Lord that is to motivate our obedience. This is evident from the structures of the biblical narrative itself. When God speaks to his people after the fall, he always reminds us of how much he has done for them before he delivers his laws. The Ten Commandments were not given to the ancient Israelites until after the Lord rescues them from slavery in Egypt, Exodus 20. In the epistles, Peter, Paul, and the other apostles generally lay out great truths of redemption before they make application of those truths in practical, ethical manners. From first to last, thankfulness is one of the major animating impulses of a true Christian ethic. It's not by accident that Paul points to a lack of honoring him and a lack of giving thanks to him as the prior sin from which all other forms of wickedness find their root and vice versa, that honoring him and a humble gratitude towards him is what Jesus says saves the leprous Samaritan who has been far from God and far from others, that the treasuring of Jesus Christ is really the faith that saves and this text really stands as a warning to Israel. All that spiritual heritage, the Samaritan condemns them. This text stands as a road sign for us. We have a lot of spiritual benefits, and yet so easily we can be more concerned with Jesus, with what he can do for us, than with Jesus himself. Deliver me healing, money, comfort, ease, grades, spouses, kids. Gimme, gimme, gimme everything but you. And then we complain about almost everything which is all actually eternally trivial. You think the leper with new skin and the new life complained about the waiter who was kind of grumpy? Or the guy who cut him off and trying to make a left on Little Home Road? 
No way, he's smiling for me to hear. I have my Jesus who loves me. I have my new life. I'm forgiven of my sin, heaven to look forward, and a Jesus who will be with me evermore. Nothing else matters. I read this uh, little quote online. This is C.S. Lewis, and we'll close with this. He writes this about the way to find true happiness. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Christianity, at the end of the day, is getting close to Jesus. And church family, is that not where we want to be more so than anything else? Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, this text, and we thank you for the heart of our Savior that you show that he thinks about lepers like us. Oh, Lord, we're, all, we're always thinking that you owe us something. Um, we're always thinking that you got to give us something. And, and I pray that by your spirit, you just show us that you've given us everything and that Jesus Christ is right in front of us if we would only but desire him. I pray, God, that you would give us that, that, that God implanted desire for your son and his glory more than our own and show us the peace and the joy and the happiness that you designed us to experience when that is the order. I pray, Lord, that we'd all be the one. We'd all be worshipers of you and honor you and give you thanks with the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.